For the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show, we're going to be talking about democracy and how democracy can sometimes fall, fall to the advances of so-called strongmen, to someone like a Mussolini or a Hitler or a Stalin. The book at hand is called Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. Uh, It is the contention uh, of the author of this book, Kenneth C. Davis, that democracy, while we might think of it and hope that it is a robust institution, and in some respects, of course, it is, is also something that can be quite fragile and uh, can fall when we perhaps least expect it, especially when we are complacent about its permanence. And uh, in his book, he examines uh, the somewhat turbulent and difficult history of democracy as it has played out in different places, and and he chronicles in particular uh, the ascendance to power of five of history's most infamous dictators. And uh, it is a fascinating look at uh, who we allow to lead us and what it takes for someone to become such a strong man, and in a sense, what is required of the people, uh, I mean, in, in terms of, of accepting that rise to power. I mean, are they willing accomplices? Uh, what is that relationship? It's uh, a, a series of, of complicated and challenging questions, very impressively approached in this meticulously researched and very well-written book, again titled Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy, published by Henry Holt and Company. Kenneth C. Davis is a a New York Times bestselling author of, among other things, America's Hidden History and Don't Know Much About History, uh, which, of course, set set into existence a, a series of books for both adults and young readers. Kenneth C. Davis, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Good morning. It is a great pleasure to be with you, Greg. Thanks for having me. Glad we can have this conversation. One of the things that you take a little time to do in your book, and I'm glad that you do, is you take some time to help us maybe gain a better understanding of what we mean by democracy and the way in which the term democracy can be used in different ways and can sometimes be rather carelessly applied. (laughs) in terms of describing governments. Uh, Let's begin with uh, sort of a brief primer on what we are talking about uh, when we are talking about democracy in its most proper sense, as well as the way in which democracy has tended to exist in the real world. Thank you, Craig. It's it's one of those words that we toss around and we don't really think too much about it, and we certainly take it for granted for to a great deal. So the book actually opens up with how quickly democracy can die in a constitutional democracy, and I use the example of, of Hitler's Germany. Uh, and then I actually give a history of this idea. We are talking about something that uh, certainly in the Western world, the concept of democracy, which by the way, the word is nowhere mentioned either in the Declaration of independence, nor in the Constitution. Um, that surprises an awful lot of people. But this is an, 
old idea, uh, at least 2,500 years old uh, when we think of going back to Athens. The word democracy is Greek in derivation, and it simply means the power of the people. Uh, many people contrast it with a republic, and I talk about the rise of the Roman Republic. Uh, if democracy is Greek for power of the people, republic comes from the Latin and also means of the people. So there are two different terms that are, are drawing on the same idea. Now, the founding fathers of this country, and I detail this uh, uh, briefly at the uh, opening of the book to give people a sense of the history. The founding fathers of this country believed in the notion of a republic. They believed in the, uh, the notion of the power of the people, but they feared democracy in many respects. They thought that the best uh, case in the past had been the Roman Republic. Uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, one of the houses of Congress is called the Senate. The word president is also a word drawn from the Latin. Um, so this was a very influential period in American, uh, in American history in evolving what would become our Constitution. But these men were worried about the power of the people getting to be too strong. And that's why at every Step, uh, a step along the way, they introduced the notion of checks and balances, that they wanted to maintain balance of power between the separate uh, uh, arms of government. And democracy was very limited under the original constitution in 1787, uh, including the fact that they did not want the people to directly elect the president. Uh, that is why we have an electoral college, very much a question of the moment. You wrote, uh, uh, you write uh, in this early chapter, uh, by embracing shared powers under a republic, the framers of the Constitution embarked in 1787 on a bold experiment in government, but their idealism was tempered by their fears of an unruly mob on one hand or a tyrant on the other. I think that's one of the most fascinating things about this, and I, I'm not sure I ever really saw that clearly until I, I read this, this uh, portion of your book, that, that there were, in a sense, two different fears at play as uh, the framers of the Constitution were doing their hard work. And that really helps us understand why it was such a difficult process. And in a sense, it also helps explain, in some ways, both the robustness and the fragility of our government as it has been put together, because... It was knit together as a, in a sense, a careful and maybe untidy compromise uh, in light of two different fears, fears of two very different threats. You're absolutely right. And in fact, Elbridge uh, Gerry, uh, whose name comes down to us as gerrymandering, also a, 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 a topic much in the news, uh, said at the Constitutional Convention, the evils we experience flow from the excess of democracy. They did think that uh, the, the notion of the people making the decisions was one step removed from mob rule. On the other hand, they understood and feared 
the power of uh, a, a single man given too much power. And the great debates in the Constitution, among the great debates in the Constitution, was what powers the president would be given, what powers this executive would be given. To name someone commander-in-chief of the army, they realized was a very dangerous, uh, potentially perilous threat. They understood, knowing well the history of, of the Roman Republic, that uh, uh, the idea of a dictator was part of the Roman Republic. Uh, it was a term that was used by the Senate to name a, a temporary military commander. Eventually, Julius Caesar uh, is named a dictator. He's then named a dictator for 10 years, and eventually he's named dictator uh, for life. Uh, and they really got nervous when he started to put his picture on the coins. Um, this is when you elevate uh, uh, leadership. A dictator elevates himself from uh, a simple leader to near deity. And the Roman Senate got really nervous once Caesar had taken those moves. So they understood that a strong man could come along. In fact, Plato, uh, going back to ancient Greece, writes that democracy will eventually fall to a tyrant. He predicts this. He gives in his uh, famous The Republic uh, five different uh, forms of government, including a democracy, which he did not think was the perfect form of government. Uh, and he thought that eventually uh, a, a tyrant would come along and replace democracy, which throughout history has often been the case. Um, and this is certainly one of the things that the framers of the Constitution feared most in 1787, and one of the reasons they put in these checks and balances that we all learn about in civics class and uh, don't seem very important until they come, become very important. Mm. So at some point uh, in the introduction of the book, you write, democracy is a fragile flower. So... Tell us what is behind those very intriguing words. Democracy is a delicate flower. I think the typical American would probably uh, never, never put those words together. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, as a historian, I would say I would, uh, and an American uh, uh, who's been writing and thinking about this a great deal and knows the, the ups and downs of American history pretty well, I'd have to say that I didn't really contemplate that seriously until recent times because we have come to accept democracy and the, the way the United States functioned reasonably well for uh, with many flaws uh, over 230 plus years is that th this idea was not only uh, created but then strengthened over the centuries. If we look at the changes in the American Constitution, all of them that reflect on voting powers uh, lead to more democracy, the opening up of the process to more power of the people, uh, African-American men getting the vote, women getting the vote, uh, giving the, uh, the election of senators a direct vote rather than by the state legislature, which is how it was originally formed, giving Washington, D.C. three electors 
protesters because until the 1960s, the people in Washington, D.C. had no voice in the presidency. Uh, one that affected me great, a great deal was uh, getting to vote at 18 in 1972, which I was able to do, and I voted in every election since, I believe. Um, so this is, uh, this is part of the, the process in America that's led to more democracy, and we've believed in this notion of one person, one vote. But one of the things that I show in the book, in the very opening chapter, is how quickly democracy can vanish. We are told by the Washington Post that democracy dies in darkness, but this book demonstrates very clearly it often dies in broad daylight, decapitated while thousands of people cheer. And specifically, I, I point to the two cases of Mussolini, first uh, because he precedes Hitler, uh, Mussolini was elected to the uh, Italian uh, legislature at the time under a constitutional democracy with a monarch. Uh, and then he's appointed, named by the king, the prime minister. Within a very short space of time, he moves quickly and decisively with legal authority to stamp out all opposition, all other parties, and create a one-party state under fascism. Similarly, Hitler is uh, brought to power under a constitutional democracy. Uh, he had run for president, finishing second to uh, pr uh, President Hindenburg, a World War I hero in, uh, in Germany, and is also appointed to the position of chancellor or prime minister, and very, very rapidly moves with legal authority to repress other parties, shut down the presses, eliminate opposition until in a short time uh, the Nazi party is the only party and uh, a flourishing democracy under the Weimar constitution uh, is destroyed, replaced by the most notorious, perhaps the most notorious uh, strong man of all, but far from the most murderous, uh, both Stalin and, and uh, Mao, who are also de described in this book, um, exceeded Hitler's worst excesses. We're speaking with Kenneth C. Davis about his newest book, Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on this, but it's a very significant point that you try to kind of chart uh, a, a long look at uh, the arc of democracy, and uh, and you see something very different happening to democracy in the wake of the First World War, after what would seem to be in in a general rise in prominence and preponderance, uh, with the end of World War One, a scenario is created in which a number of notable democracies. Uh, and we've already <laughs> named a couple of them, uh, tumble very quickly. Uh, explain what that scenario is uh, that we were left with at the end of the First World War that, in a sense, left some of these major democracies so vulnerable. 
It's a really important point and one of the things I've tried to stress over the years that, uh, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself in this, you know, Groundhog Day uh, uh, scenario, but we can learn an awful lot from what happened in the past and how it affects the future. And no, no better example of that than what happened in the aftermath of World War I of course, ended November 11th, 1918. Uh, Woodrow Wilson had taken America into war with the promise that it was a war to uh, defend democracy, which is a, a somewhat specious claim, So it will, but we'll treat that another time. Um, but in the aftermath, when you have the end of these empires uh, around the world, uh, you have the victorious nations coming in and essentially redrawing the maps, not only of Europe, but redrawing the maps of the world. And almost every one of these uh, these countries that falls to a strong man uh, is something that happens in the aftermath of World War I and what happened in Versailles. So it's a crucial moment in world history and one that still affects us today. Iraq, which is the, uh, the last of the five uh, stories in this, was a creation of uh, 1919, uh, redrawing the maps of what had then been called Mesopotamia and the creation of the state that would become known as Iraq. So all of these, uh, these stories uh, radiated out from this. Mussolini and Hitler were both World War I veterans. It was a shaping experience for them. They took the chaos and the carnage that was uh, the aftermath of the war in their countries and turned it to their advantage. Uh, of course, while World War I is going on, we have the Russian Revolution, uh, a, nas a nascent uh, republic in Russia that replaced the Tsar was quickly overthrown, uh, just as it was in China, where, again, the, the war and the results of the war in, uh, in 1918 had an impact on China as well. So you have the end of the Chinese Empire, this thousands-of-year dynasty, uh, and replaced briefly by a republic under Dr. Sun Yat-sen, uh, but that doesn't hold. Uh, of course, there are enormous powers here, and I try and go through each of these quickly, but tr trying to summarize that these things never happen in a vacuum, that we always must look at the ripples that come out when a large stone is dropped in the pond, and World War I was a large stone. Right. And, of course, what we're talking about here uh, in, in all of these instances is where a so-called strong man comes along who seems to be offering what the people would, at least on a very visceral level, seem to most desperately want, a sense of order, of bringing chaos under control, of marching forward somehow, and, uh, and, and if, if, if a population is feeling a, a certain level of, of fear, uh, that is exactly the, the kind of situation in which such a figure is uh, perhaps going to have greatest impact. Is that an oversimplification, or is that, in a sense, the heart of the matter? 
No, I, I don't think it's an oversimplification at all. It's, uh, it's part of the, the, the process and a central part of the process. If we look at sort of the uh, four key early elements in, in the rise of, of a strong man, we start with a, a, a nationalist, an, an extreme nationalist who is also a populist uh, or appears to be a populist. Uh, it's you know a very slippery term. So that person is coming along saying that they want to restore the nation's past glory or greatness, that uh, this nation has been downtrodden and they have a whole list of grievances for why their, their nation's greatness has been diminished and it should be returned to its, its former glory. Mussolini certainly does this by calling upon the glories of ancient Rome. It is no accident, most people are not aware that the word fascism comes from a Latin term, fasces, that was the symbol of authority in ancient Rome. It was a bundle of rods bound together around an axe head. Uh, Mussolini used that symbol uh, to name his party, and that symbol, the fasces, was prominently displayed throughout Italy at the time. You can go to the central tra train station in Milan today, uh, perhaps the last monument to fascism that, uh, that is standing, and see those fasces on the side of that building alongside statues of uh, uh, horses and godlike men, Mussolini trying to restore this grandeur that was ancient Rome. So that's uh, certainly one typical thing. Hitler certainly does the same. Then alongside that, as I said, there's grievances. Usually they are placing blame on a single group, usually an ethnic or religious minority. Uh, or a foreign threat, or a particular party. Certainly, we obviously look at uh, uh, Germany and the uh, discussion of, of the Jews, uh, the discussion of how foreign nations had uh, destroyed Germany in the aftermath of World War I. So this is uh, kind of step two. Um, then the warning of an emergency, sometimes non-existent, uh, or responding to severe economic distress. Certainly the case both in uh, Germany, in Italy, post-war period, uh, certainly the reason that Mao and Stalin are able to come to power is the extreme economic distress of the people in their country. Um, so these are, are all themes that these strong men are able to use. And finally, the call for all law and order. Uh, and eliminating corruption, that uh, one of the reasons that we are in the state we're in is because the leadership has been so corrupt. The, uh, the, the, the factors that you are talking about uh, in the minds of some would, would call to mind uh, some of what we are experiencing today. How much is this book crafted uh, in reflection of current events uh, right now in the United States? Well, let me say right up front, uh, very uh, bluntly, that I don't discuss the current administration or current American politics uh, uh, at all in this book. It's much more a book of history, looking back, and uh, a book that has an eye to the future when the, the momentary politics will disappear. But you're absolutely right. I don't need to name anyone to say that the four things that I've just pointed out are certainly things that have been part of the appeal of uh, the current president. 
then you go on from there to some of the other things that these strong men have done. And I, I do not want to, you know, say here that uh, I will not label any current American politician with any of these labels that are thrown around much too casually, I think. But when you have attacks upon the free press, when you have attacks upon minority groups, immigrant groups that are part of the appeal, when you have an attack on the courts and the legitimacy of elections, as we have seen, uh, we're in that very, very dangerous waters, and that's why this is very much a cautionary tale for America. You know, one uh, the, the day after the uh, presidential debate a few weeks ago, I was rather stunned, astonished to see headlines in the New York Times that say uh, the president is essentially calling into question the legitimacy of the American election system. He's calling into uh, question the legitimacy of uh, uh, the, the, uh, pr the process itself. Uh, this is unprecedented in American history, in my experience, and something I think that anyone of any party, of any uh, political affiliation should be concerned about if we really believe in the ideas that the country is founded upon, that all men are created equal, that we are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that we the people uh, are the ones who have created this government, uh, and we are trying to make a more perfect uh, union out of it. Mm. One line that leapt out of uh, to me uh, in the chapter devoted to Benito Mussolini is uh, when you said that some of the people who supported Mussolini in the early going made the misjudgment that they could rein him in. And I think that is, that is a mistake not limited to, to Mr. Mussolini and his supporters, that, that in a sense uh, we were talking about strong figures uh, and uh, a certain swath of the population that craves such a leader, but there is also this sense that uh, we can hopefully get this strong leader to do what we want the way we want him to do it. And, of course, a strong man, by very definition, is not going to be somebody who uh, is easily bridled or guided. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, I, I guess uh, you, you mentioned Mussolini, and then certainly the, ca uh, the case in his example, the same thing was largely true of Adolf Hitler, who was seen as a sort of a minor uh, uh, character uh, who people in power, including those in the military, others in the German government at the time, thought that they would put him in as a sort of uh, puppet figure, someone they would uh, easily control. They, they weren't very impressed with this man. He was a, you know, a, a corporal in the army in World War One. He was not well educated. Uh, they, they certainly looked down at him. I, I think the phrase used throughout history has sometimes been the useful idiot. Uh, Neither Mussolini or Hitler, of course, was a useful idiot. They were far more ruthless and, uh, and scheming and willing to use any means uh, to get the, uh, accrue the power that they eventually accrued, and that was using means legal and illegal. 
extreme violence in in many cases. Uh, Mussolini, as I mentioned, is put into power uh, uh, by the king of Italy, who was a rather feckless uh, individual. And um, within a very short period of time, he does call another election. That election is riddled by fraud and corruption. Uh, a senator in uh, gets up in the room in the Italian Senate and decries this election as being fraudulent and corrupt. He disappears the next day and is found murdered a few weeks later. Uh, so there's the ruthlessness, the level of violence that follows on these men being put into power by very, very uh, perhaps uh, powerful men who think that they have the ability to control this person. And they are tragically and woefully wrong in that case. It's a powerful book, which ends with a powerful chapter titled Never Again, in which we are called to uh, draw conclusions from uh, some of these painful lessons of history. The book, again, is titled Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy, published by Henry Holt and Company and the author Kenneth C. Davis. Kenneth C. Davis, thank you so much for writing this powerful and important book, and thank you for being part of the morning show today. Thanks so much for having me. For those who are interested to learn more, you can go to my website, don'tknowmuch.com, where I write about this book and, and my other work. And uh, just always a reminder that, uh, indeed, history matters.